1: She...
0: Recorded live.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Carl Shinneman, president and founder of ReviewLess, and welcome to another edition of ESI Bite. Uh, we're alongside the Honorable Judge Facciola. I was a retired U.S. magistrate judge in the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia. We're going to attempt to offer information, insights, and uh, uh, tidbits of uh you know, useful uh, information about e-Discovery innovation from national speakers on electronic discovery at a price everyone can afford, which is free, and available when you're interested in listening to it, which is just whenever you hit the play button on your computer, iPod or whatever device you use. Today we have a, a real interesting show on using eDiscovery Council to innovate in e-Discovery. Uh, as we talk to three e-Discovery lawyers or e-Discovery Council. Uh, for corporations, and even other law firms in some instances. It's sometimes hard to understand how bringing in yet another lawyer into a project can add efficiency. But in this case, the evidence can be compelling. Uh, We'll let our panelists talk about why in their experiences this can work out very well for for their clients. Uh, Our participants in the show, as I named are my co host Judge Facciola, who's well-known in the field for his thought-provoking opinions and the speaking he's done nationally on the topic. Uh, Judge Faschiel has been a mentor for many in the field, including myself, for years and is active in e-discovery education at Georgetown. Uh, Jonathan Redgrave is on the show, and he's a pioneer in e-discovery with his involvement starting the Sedona Conference, Georgetown Advanced e discovery CLE program, and innovative models of law firms who deliver e-discovery services. His current law firm, Redgrave LLP, provides e-discovery services to clients all over the world, Jonathan's a repeat guest on the ESI Bytes, a longtime friend, and we're pleased to have him rejoin us on the show. Kelly Twigger uh, is an attorney who headed eDiscovery at a large Midwest law firm, Quarles & Brady, before heading off on her own to start a virtual law firm, ESI Attorneys. Kelly has a very strong technology background and has created software for iPads, which uh, serves as an eDiscovery reference tool, which hopefully we'll, we'll talk a little bit about at some point in the show. She also serves as eDiscovery counsel for companies <laughs> nationally. So like me, Kelly is both an entrepreneur and an attorney, and we've been good friends for years. Also, uh, our last guest, Heidi Fessler, is somewhat more traditionally discovery counsel as she's providing uh, her services at a Minneapolis-based law firm, Briggs and uh, Morgan, which offers general services as well. This might not sound as full-fledged innovative, but the challenge is to setting up a practice group in a law firm and signing up clients to have her work as e-discovery counsel shows that the right lawyer can provide these services even within a traditional law firm i met heidi earlier this year and a 30-minute coffee meeting turned into an hour and a half sharing of ideas and passions about e-discovery she works extensively in educating lawyers both in her firm and nationally about e-discovery and estimates she has delivered more than 1500 seminars on e-discovery litigation whole policies and information governance standards so it's a good group let's start the show um, so General question, why why have eDiscovery Council? Uh, Jonathan, do you do you have any thoughts on this? Carl, I certainly
3: do, and thanks again for inviting me to join you in another uh, program. I guess the simple answer I'm going to give you is you need it. That's why you should have eDiscovery Council, but that's a little too simple. Uh, a slightly more nuanced answer is going to be it makes life better. And how does it make life better? Well, first, I think having someone that really understands the area helps you avoid knee-jerk reactions, I'll call it, such as telling a client, save everything, which is a command that can't be met and sets up a world of trouble, or perhaps the disaster in waiting where years later one of the merits counsel says, gee, we never thought of preserving that. Um, both of those are really bad answers. in the the world of e-discovery counsel, whether they're in a law firm or a separate firm that's supporting uh, merits counsel, it's really about making life better by helping people understand the complexities of the information age and how that relates to legal discovery. And when I say complexities, this stuff changes so fast when we talk about social media, mobile devices, cloud computing, and the Internet of Things. It is a real wow factor, and you have to really understand what's going on with the technology and where the information is. And that's where eDiscovery Discovery Council kind of blends kind of a knowledge, a working knowledge of both the technologies that individuals and companies might be using, but then understanding the litigation tools that are now available that we didn't have even just a few years ago, and and combining that also with the common sense and practical um, know-how of the discovery system to help uh, an individual or company get through the process in a proportional and efficient manner. Uh, this is a great challenge, and I think you know. back to my you-need-it simple answer to your question, Carl, um, there's just... A growing realization, I think, from from many people, and, and this isn't hasn't swept the entire world yet, but a growing realization that there's enough here that having separate counsel that deal with your discovery in electronic age can be a true value add. Again, whether or not it's just within a firm that's working on it, or more often, what we're seeing is you know a separate firm that does it um, coming in and standing side by side with with the marriage counsel. So I, I think that's my quick answer to your, you know, your first question off the bat. Uh,
0: Kelly, this is John Facciola. Uh, How does eDiscovery interact with trial counsel? What is the division of responsibility between them? Or does trial counsel handle all the litigation tasks by kind of default?
2: Um, Good morning, Judge. Thanks to you and Carl for for having me on the show this morning. And, um, you know, the answer to your question is it it really depends on the relationship. Um, Oftentimes, It depends, for me, um, the level of sophistication of trial counsel that I'm working with uh, and how much experience they have. If I'm working for a plaintiff's firm and they have no um, experience in dealing with discovery uh, with electronically stored information, then, you know, we work with them soup to nuts. um, And oftentimes we... Uh, are admitted to the case and handle all the hearings and deal with all the electronic discovery issues with support um, including uh, taking depositions um, or uh, conducting hearings with experts uh, on you know, why certain issues are on sanctions motions so it really can run the gamut um, other times we interact directly with trial counsel to um, discuss e-discovery strategy, and this kind of goes to the question that Jonathan just answered, which is why do you need e-discovery counsel? A lot of times uh, our role is to sit down with trial counsel and understand what the trial strategy is for the case on the merits, and then to work with them on how that affects the e-discovery strategy, what positions that we wanna take and how we can approach those and how we can make sure preservation is in place. Even if we decide to take different strategies, um, Than producing all of the information, so I think that the way that we interact does depend, um, but there it gives two additional advantages that to what Jonathan mentioned, which is it prevents our clients from reinventing the wheel often on discovery, and it also affords them considerable cost savings because most e-discovery Council have you know very intimate knowledge of what the technologies and softwares are that are available to handle the data and how we can best approach that given the types of data um, and strategies for the case.
4: And um, this is Heidi Fester, and I want to thank Judge Fasciola as well as Carl for inviting me to participate in this podcast. I would also add to that that I think we have been finding that we are very involved in the litigation as well, not just in – Designing strategy with trial counsel, but also in addressing proportionality now, since in Minnesota, at least, they have a mandate within the rules that proportionality be discussed. And frankly, as Minnesota is somewhat late to the game in the e-discovery arena, we also are dealing with a lot of exfoliation arising from inappropriate and improper collection and preservation. So we are very involved in addressing the court on these issues as well and driving the discussion forward.
2: Yeah, and if I can, Kelly, again, if I can follow up on that from Heidi, by strategy at the beginning, I, I think that, and I'm sure Jonathan would agree, that the best way to utilize e-discovery counsel is to use them throughout the case. It's not something that works at the start of the case, and then you drop off, and they're not a part of the case going forward. Um Being consistently a part of the team with counsel all the way through the matter is the most effective use. There are times when discovery counsel comes and goes when there are motions that are sitting in front of the court for months on end. But um, as a general rule, um, almost all of the decisions that come about um, will impact um, strategy and what discovery counsel should have input on.
1: Boy, it sounds like we could insert the word eDiscovery Council and replace it with special master. <laughs> it's bringing in expertise—it's uh, always a good idea, uh, in, in my experience. Uh, well, the, ne- the next question is, is uh, dear to me in the heart of uh, what ESI bites about, about focusing on on innovation uh, to let others know that innovation is actually possible in eDiscovery. And uh, Heidi, I'd like to ask you, and maybe some of the other panelists. Uh, What are some of the innovations you've been able to propose, which a traditional litigator might not see by being stuck in a discrete case on behalf of a client?
4: Thank you. Yes, actually, this is an area that I've been very active in, and it's less about the technology than it is about the process. Um, I serve as National e-discovery Council for a large corporation, and one of the ways that I have been able to innovate is I'm very integrated with their internal team. They frankly forget that I'm not an employee of the company as well, and so I'm able to get in well before even litigation starts or is even envisioned and design their processes regarding legal holds, from inside, as well as just how we approach preservation and collection. So I think oftentimes e-discovery is brought in after the matter has already occurred, preservation hopefully has taken place. This allows us to be very involved and understand all the data sources, how we can best preserve, save the client money, and really set up external counsel, as well as the internal team, to be really well-placed in respect to the data that they have preserved and collected. And it is one area that I think corporations now with the real increase in risk management strategies are understanding is that they need to have somebody who can speak to this very specifically with a legal background and not just rely on their inside corporate counsel team because they've cut back the in-house counsel teams to such a level that there's not really likely to be anybody inside that team and inside the corporation who can really specialize. So I use it as a process and I am able to utilize the internal resources of the corporation to really do a good job in identification, preservation, and then ultimately collection.
0: Uh, this is John Facciolo. Jonathan, um, how do you and uh, Inside counsel, the lawyers you're working with, how do you get along? Are there turf wars, or can you work out some sort of a a cooperative way of looking at things?
3: Well, I think that's a great question, Judge, because uh, a lot of people say if you're inserting another uh, layer, uh, any discovery counsel, whether at a firm or or a separate uh, uh, firm, you know, how does that really work? And you don't really get as much concern from in-house counsel except they're counting the number of, of firms and wondering if it's advantageous for them. Uh, outside firms, you, I've certainly heard this, and I think and many people have, that there would be this resistance from outside law firms and merits counsel uh, from having a discovery counsel involved. But we're beginning to see that, that uh, that's really shifting. And it's really, I think, in, in, in large part because a lot of firms are seeing, uh, like our firm, as more of an insurance policy or maybe a lightning rod. In other words, if there's an issue or a problem or a challenge on the e-discovery front, they know that we'll be there to take care of it, and, and it won't be something that will tar the marriage council who are trying to deal with summary judgment or class certification motions or things like that. Um, and by working collaboratively, we can seamlessly integrate um, as a team, one of the uh, general counsel, I know, had often just referred to us as just being another, you know, another part of the trial team or another part of the litigation team because they want to hire the best team. And if we happen to be at a different firm, that didn't trouble him at all. And I think more general counsel uh, are beginning to think that way. They want the right teams put together. I think something that Kelly said really ties into this too because for the in-house counsel, they can see uh, like a national e-discovery approach as being truly beneficial because in an antitrust case, they might pick one big law firm. In a products liability case, they might pick someone different. If there's an environmental suit, you name it. All sorts of different things, they might pick the the best horse, so to speak, of the trial lawyers in those areas. But across the the horizontal beam, I'll call it, of, of discovery, all the computer systems are the same. All the records management systems are the same. You know, all the data, all the phones, all the things that people are using are the same. So if we're in there and we understand that layer, we can interact with all of those different trial teams and all those different substance, subject matter areas and help them from beginning to end, from the preservation through all the discussions on proportionality all the way to the production and even to the trial site stage on these issues But the in-house lawyer has now seen, rather than paying all seven of those firms seven different times for their people to understand this, um, they're just paying us once, and they can leverage that. So from the in-house perspective, I think a lot of people are beginning to look beyond the traditional just counting the number of firms on a matter to understand how you leverage it. And from the outside counsel perspective, while there still is some layer of uh, pushback um, uh, turf war, I think, Judge, I, I think we're really beginning to see that change as people understand the, both the need and the value of having people to understand this. And I think the same thing is true from my experience in the bigger firms where I was part of the big firm doing this, is you have to have partners in those firms to understand the value of having you know, eDiscovery Council get involved uh, and realize it's not another layer. It's really ne- necessary, both protection and value add.
1: You know, there's a there's a area to that. Um, and I was curious, Heidi, what, you, what your perspective has been uh, of having to work with lawyers within their firm, and, and maybe not within your firm, but but you, you certainly network with other eDiscovery counsel who, who typically work in a law firm as general practice, and how they find interacting, you know, and, and sharing and educating about the utility of edu- education of e-discovery counsel within confines of you know one team, one law firm. Um, yeah.
4: Well, I would say that turf wars are not only between external counsel and the Discovery Council. They're also inside law firms where you know it's just probably part of our legal training and it's part of being a lawyer is that we're rather territorial about our clients and our information that we don't really want to share it internally either. So um, somebody said it's like hurting Sheep, I think it's like herding wet cats. Um, It's (laughs) Difficult at best, and I think it's an evolution. What I have found is that by explaining to them the risks that they face by doing this poorly or with their lack of knowledge going forward, that they're jeopardizing themselves and their clients and that really we're very targeted regarding where we want to have ourselves inserted into our co-partners' litigation. And having to be very, very strategic and understanding that sort of dynamic that this is their case, they're going to stand up at the end and have to defend their client or present their case and just being really strategic and asking only to have our small area of expertise internally in the firm. It's been a difficult but a rewarding struggle.
1: A necessary one, I I might add, um... You know, I was I was just out in Chicago at a conference and I heard my good friend Jason Barron deliver uh, another excellent keynote uh, at that conference where he lamented how information governance projects and defensible data deletion oftentimes die on the vine because some lawyer somewhere, and I'm paraphrasing, got scared about the risk of hitting the delete button um, Kelly, is this an area where eDiscovery Council maybe might have better insights to counsel clients that this is manageable risk, and the upside and cost savings and better corporate data management make this a, a no-brainer as opposed to a huge risk?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and Jonathan touched on this earlier. Um, in fact, this is this is one of the prime benefits of having eDiscovery Council because they can be involved with a client and understand, help them put these processes in place and then understand what the processes are so that when litigation comes up, they can be dealt with appropriately. And, um, you know, we have clients who we've put processes in place exactly like this for data deletion, you know, rolling... Um, expiration of email, which is the number one largest volume source um, of ESI in litigation. And it's made a huge difference in their e-discovery costs, which we track. And I wanted to mention that as a follow-up to things that both Jonathan and Heidi had mentioned, that cost is a way to try to eliminate some of those turf wars. We track those costs for clients on a case-by-case basis and show them um, to the clients and and that sort of solidifies the value of the eDiscovery Council. But the defensible deletion is all about understanding the risks and knowing what cases you have that require litigation holds and knowing that you have those litigation holds in place and that you've collected or captured whatever information you need to, and then being able to put policies in place. I mean, you can go all the way back to the Zuba Lake decisions where Judge Shindlin said that nothing has to be perfect, um, it has to be reasonable, and it is appropriate for businesses and individuals, all people <laughs> to who may be parties to litigation, to um have deletion uh you know let's call it information management policies in place to be able to handle information, they do need to be thoughtful based on the litigation that you have. But That is absolutely a huge role where eDiscovery Council comes in and can advise.
1: It was interesting at this conference, they, uh, one of the panelists put this chart up, which everyone referred to as, as a spaghetti chart, and it had essentially the, the uh, risks or expense of data over time. And, uh, you know, I think it was like after a two-year period. Generally, everything went up through the roof versus its utility as as information. So it was risk versus utility. And um, it was such a compelling chart. uh, I looked at it and I said, why did Jason raise that issue at the keynote at lunch? Because this looks a lot like the chart we used in Global Aerospace, a simple chart that conveyed a simple message that, hey, this would be reasonable to take this action because of this. And I said, you know, I'm an e-discovery guy, but I feel like I could make that argument. You know, why aren't other lawyers comfortable? And, uh, I, you know, I guess it's all the, 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 you know, did you dot the I's and cross the T's that you mentioned, Kelly, where eDiscovery Council might be helpful that get people scared.
0: Heidi, we live in a world where the new technology replaces the uh, old technology on almost a day, daily basis. Have you been able to introduce any new technologies, and have they had an impact on how this, this is practiced?
4: Um, Yeah, we have been able to bring in some new technologies. And one thing about eDiscovery, it's never boring and things change all the time. Some of the more current technologies that we've been using lately are RGC collection, where we have a device set up behind the firewall that's remotely controlled and it allows us to do all the network collection. But it's even now went so far as to be able to have the individual employees at the client bring their cell phones there and have them just hooked up to the device and it can launch a collection of the cell phones and mobile devices remotely, which has been really useful when our client is in a less um, metro location. It really cuts the cost and I find that our clients like it, it doesn't feel as intrusive. Um, I also have been using website archiving tools and platforms that allow us to do forensic website archiving. For patent litigation, IP litigation as well, and even just some of the social media that we need. And I find that most of our tools today are integrating a lot of analytic reporting mm-hmm. inside the tools. Which, you know, with my group of attorneys and with Minnesota having been somewhat late to the game, it gives them the ability to understand the data that they would never have had. Um, there's this, you know, belief that you can just look at a container of data and understand it. But this gives them some really granular information about the data, allows them to be very intelligent in how they discuss it with their clients and look for additional data sets. So I think there is just every day there's more technology. We've done predictive coding. Um I, I'm a big believer in it. And some of the new search technologies I think are really going to change the game in that way as well.
1: You know, people sometimes bring in lawyers when there's a problem and sometimes they bring in the team right at the beginning. Is is there a best time to bring in e-discovery counsel you know, during a case or part of a strategic plan? And is there utility once you find a problem, maybe to bring in e-discovery counsel to try to fix something?
2: And Kelly,
1: I'm curious what your thoughts are on that.
2: Um, I think, I think uh, Heidi, Johnson and I would all say that the earlier, the better. Um, if, you know clients that have e discovery counsel in place before they get notice of litigation um and ha- where counsel have had an opportunity to understand the data sources within the organization what the organization's litigation portfolio looks like what their risks are um there are so many factors that that impact decisions in litigation and having e discovery counsel in place before litigation hits can have extraordinary um advantages cost savings um, knowledge better strategic decisions etc cetera, etc cetera. that being said if you don't have a discovery council in place before litigation hits the second that you find out about it um, is going to be a very important time because you know the the way that we used to work carl is is with paper and custodians who you go and talk to them three months after the complaint was filed and they pull a file out of their desk and hand it to you. And now we've got, you know, data that can be deleted that's key to the lawsuit the same day that you get the complaint. And in the right circumstances, that can be spoliation. So, you know, you've, you've got to have somebody who knows how to take steps immediately for your organization when you get notice of litigation. And so the earlier, the better is always the mantra of when it's appropriate to bring in e-discovery counsel. But uh, as soon as you realize you need them, sometimes it's too late. Um, The later you do it, the more it will cost and the more risks you're taking on.
1: So you're the Maytag repairman. You know, you can call me now you can call me later.
2: (laughs) A little bit. A little bit.
1: You know, without... Naming names, you know, uh, we we all have been sort of suggesting, and that that there have been a lot of pain in this space from people not doing this the right way. Um, you know, Jonathan, uh, you know, are there, are there issues you've seen or heard of uh, from your vast network uh, when a lawyer who isn't savvy about e-discovery is running an e-discovery project? Some some of the things that that, that have could happen.
3: Oh, sure, I'd be happy to tackle that one, and, and I know you a uh kind of previewed this one for me. I've got uh, just four observations for you. I'm sure I'd have a, a, a bag full of more, but I thought these four might be helpful for people to think about. I think the first one, I think Judge Facciolo will appreciate this one too, is just the failure to see the full picture. So what do I mean? It's really, do you understand what information you actually need to use at a trial? What's really going to be the evidence in the case? And have you done what you needed to both find it, but then also get it, produced in a way that you're actually going to get it into evidence. It doesn't have the proper and requisite foundation. Um, Sometimes people are just going into this, uh, they run, uh, they grab, they think they've done it right. But if they don't see the full picture of how all of this discovery relates to the ultimate objective here of resolution um, through positive motions or even a trial, then you've really failed in your job in discovery. So not seeing the full picture is the first thing Uh, The second thing is making promises or representations that either cannot be fulfilled or or they're just not met. And this is time and time again you'll see, um, this is often the case with the senior lawyers uh, who want to get out there and just always be in front of the court, and then they're asked a question they make a representation that is just not right. And that is a true failure of communication um, that can be avoided with the right use of uh, discovery counsel. The third thing is failing to appreciate the benefits as well as these risks and downsides of ESI. When I say the benefits, we're just talking about some of these here, whether it's technology assisted review or other means in which you can use the technology to capture the right information and and not over preserve. Um, There's all sorts of things here where the technology, if you understand it, can have benefits and, and, and lawyers should not be afraid of understanding there are benefits to moving forward in our society with technological advances. And the fourth thing I'd say as far as an observation is bunker mentality. That is where uh, council gets themselves in a bit of a hole, but then as we sometimes like to do in Washington, D.C., you step back and you watch people dig deeper. Um, Oftentimes the council that's involved doesn't wanna reach out to eDiscovery council after the matter's been going along for a while because they're afraid it's gonna make them look bad. They're afraid that it will be an admission of some sort of mistake in front of the client. And by then failing to manage their way out of mistakes, it gets far worse. So I think that bunker mentality is something that I've seen and is clearly um, a big issue. Uh, And I think that what some folks need to do if they're in a situation where something's gone awry is is don't be afraid to pick up the phone. Don't be afraid to get other people involved. Help can come and it doesn't have to impugn uh, or be an admission of any fault or failures, there there are different ways to manage the situation. But, you know, just as if you get sick, it might be a good idea to go to a doctor, someone who really knows what they're doing, rather than sitting at home and keep trying home remedies or ignoring
0: the problem. Kelly, I understand that you're an iron lawyer. You have actually written technology for use by lawyers. I think you and I have discussed that on several occasions. Could you tell us what you've done and how it's helpful? Uh,
2: sure. Yeah, we created – well, we found that because we conduct – Um, discovery all over the country um, in the various states and and internationally that that we needed, we were pulling together all kinds of resources on a regular basis, the rules, case law, a lot of the checklists and templates that we use within our practice um, and we wanted to have them um, available as a resource within the firm uh, and so we built a a portal for us to use within the firm and then I started to get a lot of requests from uh, fellow colleagues and everything else to make a lot of that information available. So We built um, a tool called the eDiscovery Assistant, and um, the tool essentially curates all of the eDiscovery case law, um, rules, checklists, templates, um, a wide variety of resources from across the net, um, glossary of terms, things like that. Um, It's currently delivered via the iPad, but we'll be rolling it out um, (coughs) for the web in about another month. So hopefully it will be available, and then uh, the goal is to ultimately be able to allow firms who want to use um, some of the resources, but be able to customize parts of it for them to be able to to use it to customize their resources as well for use within their their firms. So it's a very it's a useful tool. I mean, I use it five or six times a day um, in terms of referencing the rules and things. I think because um, hopefully, as Jonathan and Heidi would agree, that where your case is has a large impact initially on what your e-discovery strategy is based on your judge and your rules. Um, what's allowable what's not allowable of course we've got amendments to the federal rules coming up so as we continue to develop what the content that's in uh, the software we add a lot of summaries of what the rules mean Um, the goal of it is to be you know allow more lawyers to to be able to deal in in electronic discovery in a more educated fashion you know not everyone can afford to hire um, e-discovery counsel and so you know, I want them to be able to to have a, a resource to be able to go to and understand what they need to know to get on board and start thinking about ESI at the beginning of cases.
1: Well, very innovative. I uh, uh, also want to follow up by asking uh, both Jonathan and Heidi what their biggest focuses are today in, in, in their practices. And Heidi, why don't you go first?
4: Well, my biggest focus in my practice, at least internally in the firm, is getting our internal litigation team involved with their clients from the very beginning and understanding that they need to be part of not just the collection, but the decision on what to preserve. And we have a somewhat of a problem where there is a real bias towards client self-collection, and that has proven to be very detrimental when they're not collecting and preserving the right information. Their collection might not even be valid. It might not be defensible. And we need to get away from that biased client-based collection as much as possible if it's not going to be guided by attorneys as well. Um, The other piece is getting our attorneys to understand when the client tries to take complete ownership over the e-discovery process, when you have a big corporate client with an internal team that takes the ball on e-discovery and runs with it and really keeps external counsel out of it. What then happens is, you know, a very tragic descent into lack of knowledge about the data, inability to find the right data to defend the case, and inability, really, even to defend the entire process as they weren't involved from the very outset. Um, it's that need to maintain some tie into the process and educating them in a way that makes them comfortable telling the client they need to be involved, how to be involved without being overly intrusive or difficult, and just really finding that fine balance.
3: And, uh, Carl, I, I guess from my standpoint, as far as what our focus today in our practice uh, give you kind of two things, both the internal and the external. The external to the market, our firm, in my practice uh, we, we do a lot of work at this National E-Discovery Council. Uh, there is still work out there and in, in, you mentioned this at the beginning, Carl, as far as special master. Uh, I think there's going to be an increased need for um, targeted ESI special masters to help parties come to um, uh, come to the table and really understand the language they're talking with each other. There's also uh, a number of things going on in the information governance space, whether it's data protection, privacy, cybersecurity, especially if we get outside the United States, there's a lot of interactivity and, and, and complications where we get involved. Internally, though, I think um, for us, there's a lot of um, effort that we undertake on a weekly basis to continue our knowledge sharing and, and knowledge acquisition, both in terms of the law. As standards evolve and we look at the new federal rules coming into play at the end of this year but certainly technology as you know carl we've got a number of folks who are non-lawyers on our on our uh, payroll who are experts with technology um, software hardware and you know making sure that we all are just growing in our knowledge and awareness of how the world keeps moving very quickly very important and then uh, on the innovation side uh, with respect to fees and relationships uh, how do we deal with our uh, our partners our clients uh, how do we do our partner firms people that work with us and we work with them how do you make that work better how do you smooth that out uh, so clients don't have surprises and the team can accomplish the objective for the client whether it ends up in settlement whether it ends up you know on, on resolution on a motion practice or uh, actually getting to the trial stage so uh, it's really thinking of how do you how do you make those relationships work better um, than a lot of the uh, uh, old saw as far as uh, the conflict that people have seen from time to time between their uh, their outside counsel and in-house counsel? That's the kind of stuff we want to make sure that we kind of eliminate from the equation. So that's kind of been our focus.
1: Well, great. Um, hey, I'd like to thank uh, everyone here on the call, Heidi, Kelly, and Jonathan, for joining Judge Facciola and me today on the Yes, for this discussion. And uh if the audience has any questions about this show or any other programs at DSI Bytes, feel free to email me at kas at reviewless.com. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Jurnon, for their continued support of ESI Bytes. And to the listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd encourage you to go to www.esibytes.com with a Y for a complete list of our shows. And as we always say here, come to ESI Bytes learn more about eDiscovery before ESI Bytes you back.